Some of you, you may need to put aside whatever thoughts you've been wrestling with. And we actually want to deal with what God is saying to us through our passage. I'm going to get you to... Our title for this series has been Building Fireproof, and we started in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Today we're in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and uh, we're going to consider our lives in terms of am I building fireproof? Is what I'm doing going to just be burned up at the end of the day when I stand before the Lord? And uh, we're going to read together now. Our title comes from a poem which I'm going to share with you in a minute from C.T. Studd, uh, One Life to Live. And uh, that life from a Christian perspective, is to live it living for Christ. I'd like you to stand. If you've got your Bibles open, stand with them, or your tablet, whatever, whatever you've got, phone, tablet. But I'd like you to stand as we read the words. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed... In this house we groan, long. Ah, verse four. For we, we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee or a pledge. So we are always, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are about absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You may be seated. C.T. Studd, or Charles Thomas Studd, better known as C.T. Studd, was a British missionary. 
Coming from a wealthy family and privileged with an education at Eton College and Cambridge University, C.T. Studd would eventually play cricket for England's national team. However, God intervened in his life in saving grace. He was converted to Christ as a young man and rather than pursue wealth, fame and worldly honour, he devoted his life to Christ on the mission field for the glory of God and in the interest of the salvation of his fellow men and women. He served in, uh, he went out uh, uh, first to China, then, uh, then India, but uh, ended up serving many years in uh, the Congo in Africa where he died. As a young man, he said this, How could I spend the best years of my life in living for the honours of this world when thousands of souls are perishing every day? And he wrote this poem, well-known poem, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Listen to it with us. Two little lines I heard one day, travelling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes and fears, each with its clays I must fulfil, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep, faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say thy will be done, and when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. 
Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. In the passage that we're dealing with, Paul has just contrasted our light affliction, our momentary light affliction, he says, with a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory and things which are seen and temporary with things that are not seen and eternal. In fact, you need to read these verses with the the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look at the things which, uh, uh, which are seen, well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And it's that same contrast that he he brings into uh, this passage. Our first thought here in verses 1 to 5 is that we're living in a tent. I don't know, how many of you like going tenting? Mostly younger ones, funny about that, but uh, some do and some don't. But you know, I've observed something about even the most hardened campers. Now, Adrian and Michelle and and family did four months uh, on the road in a tent around Australia, ducking weather because there was a cyclone coming in Queensland and things like that and then having to get across uh, before the rain flooded out Uluru and and all of those sort of uh, adventures. But one thing I've noticed is that they all eventually come home to the creature comforts of a solid house. Not too many live perpetually in a tent. Unless they're refugees or... Um, displaced peoples, uh, whether here or internationally. So don't get too comfortable in your house as though it were a permanent arrangement. To put it in even greater perspective, imagine as that photo shows, living for years in refugee camps in tents. Cold in the winter, hot in the summer, Uh, They are trying to improve the status of some of these tents for for refugees. But years in limbo, looking for a better land. That's what he says in verse 1. For we know the reason that he's not discouraged is that we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul uses the tent as a metaphor for our earthly life and body. And what he's saying is, it's temporary. Paul, as a tent maker, knows a great deal about tents. 
He would have been there as a tent maker, either making new tents or repairing tents. And of course, in the Middle East in those days, there were a lot of nomadic people. And uh, so he, he understands what he's talking about. The tent will eventually be torn down. Some translations have destroyed, but it, the, the word literally means striking down a tent. And we need to be reminded, Psalm 103 verse 15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourishes. But the picture is that we come and we go from this tent. Paul compared our bodily existence to living in an earthly tent and the resurrection body to a palace or other grand building. Hence Stud's poem, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. We talked in the last about building with wood, hay and stubble, a gold, silver and precious stones versus building with wood, hay and stubble. Writing about Abraham, the author of the letter of the Hebrews also compared heaven to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. We read, by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You see, a tent is not only temporary, but it's not stable as a building. A tent can be blown away. A tent is movable. A tent has no foundation. But a building is solid, if built right, stable, founded and lasting. And what he says is that we have a better building yet to come. We're living in this temporal arrangement and it's, a, it's kind of a, a tattered, torn, uh, old, leaky tent. It's breaking down. It's, be, it's going to be one day be torn down, taken down. So that begs the question, if we're living in a temporary tent, what are your priorities? What are your focus? Indeed, what are you living for? Are you living for what is fireproof? We said it last time in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. You see, the resurrection body is like that of the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus is not made with hands. It's not, we don't make it. We get to share in it. We have a responsibility for how we live now. That has a bearing on then, but it's, it's made by Christ. In Mark 14, 58, Jesus, uh, they, it says, Jesus said, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Made without, with hands is temporal. That's what we're doing here. But the eternal is made by the creative word of Christ, and it brings us to longing to be clothed. He uses a different metaphor here. 
a picture of being dressed or not dressed. And he says, for indeed in this house we groan. In other words, we're, we're wearing these old clothes, old worn out uh, jeans. Uh, you know, it's interesting in our day, uh, when I was growing up, and this is for those of you young ones, this is a reversal to, to what you know. Uh, in, in our day, growing up, you put on your best for Sunday and you, 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 anywhere you went out, you had to look smart. I remember Heather saying that if she went down 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 uh, the streets in Burnie, Mum made sure she was looking her, in her best looking. Today, you buy jeans that look like they're already worn out. <laughs> they're, they're already torn. <laughs> they're already faded. <laughs> uh, the more grunge you can look, the better it is. The more casual. <laughs> but really. Our life in this temporary tent is a reminder that we are decaying, that we are wearing out, and that we long for a better set of clothes in that sense. And that clothing, of course, is the house of which he's been talking about. And it says in uh, verse 2 to 3, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. You see, we can long for that moment when mortality, that is our tent, is swallowed up by life. In 2 Timothy 4.6, Paul says to Timothy, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Remember talking to the Philippians earlier, although I think I've got that, so I'll leave it till we get there. David Guzik said this, Christians therefore groan because we see both the limitations of this body and superiority of the body to come. Now notice it's groan, not grumbling. And sometimes I think we get that round the wrong way. We grumble about this body and about our life existence. And we forget we have a future and a hope. And he says, uh, uh, we are earnestly desiring our new bodies, meant, but then he notes a, a point of contrast. He says, many of us are not earnestly desiring heaven. Is it because we are so comfortable on earth? It isn't that we should seek out affliction, but neither should we dedicate our lives to the pursuit of comfort. There is nothing wrong with earnestly desiring heaven. There is something right about being able to agree with Paul and saying, but we groan awaiting that. Paul said in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, and of course you've got to deal with the verses before, but as he looks at the dilemma of walking through this life and he says, who will set me free from the body of this death? The answer to that is chapter 8 where he talks about the Holy Spirit's work. And then in Romans 8, 22 and 23, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Again, the question comes, are you waiting eagerly for that day? Not just because this body is decaying, but because you know it's the fullness of what God will do. He says that 
what was Paul getting at when he talked about being clothed and not being found naked? Well, the Greek philosophers thought that uh, a bodiless spirit was the highest level of existence. The body was corrupt and... uh, They thought of the body as a prison for the soul and saw no advantage in being resurrected in another another body. And so he says, to God, the body is not a a negative. The problem isn't in the body itself. Remember, he did make it perfect at the start. Uh, But in these sin-corrupted, fallen bodies that we live in, Jesus approved the essential goodness of the body by becoming a man. Fully man, fully God, but he, he took on the form uh, of man, uh, albeit sinful, sinless man. And if there was something inherently evil in the body, Jesus could never have addressed humanity to his deity. John MacArthur says, Paul knew Christian death would not mean being released into a nebulous spiritual infinity. Rather, it would mean the receiving of a glorified, spiritual, immortal, perfect, qualitatively different, but nonetheless real body just as Jesus received. Now, some, some groups think that when, uh, uh, when we die, we go into what the uh, Seventh-day Adventists call soul sleep, because they can't picture a, a bodiless soul, um, but we await the resurrection. And uh, as we find in our passage here today, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, if you're a believer. But 1 Corinthians 15.42, Paul says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. And you get the contrast. There's, There's no comparison. Why would you choose to put all of your energy, all of your investments, all of your being into preserving this life. Now, we have to live in this life, but there is coming yet, the investment is in for the eternal life. In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait, notice that again, eagerly wait for a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject things to himself. John put it this way in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when that he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We're being transformed into his very image. If our focus is right, the more that we submit to the work of the Spirit, the more we seek to please the Lord, as we're going to look at in verse 9, then the more we become like him. And what happens is that mortality becomes swallowed up by life. Verse 4 and five, 4 says, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Paul reiterated that he could hardly wait to get his glorified body. Our new bodies will not be subject, subjected to death. When we receive our eternal bodies... 
life completely conquers death. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17, as we looked earlier, um, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. In Philippians 1, 21 and 20, uh, to 23, he says, for me to live. And this is an important verse in, in the context of what he's talking about here. For me to live. It's not choosing just to give up on life here and, and wanting to commit suicide or anything like that. It's not wanting to escape this life but is wanting to live this life in such a way, one life to live will soon be passed. It's wanting to live that it has an eternal value, that it receives the rewards that are there. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Why fruitful labor? Because he's investing in the things of God. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. He's got the longing to be completed, to be finished, to be in the presence of the Lord. As John MacArthur notes, God's purpose is to clothe believers in eternal life. And Paul emphatically states that the believer's heavenly existence will come to pass according to God's sovereign purpose. In verse 5 he says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. A pledge, a guarantee a down payment, an earnest. He has given us his Holy Spirit to guarantee that he's going to complete the work. Isn't that an incredible privilege that we have to know the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit within us? If that is true in your life, then you know that he's going to, he's going to one day present you before him blameless. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on eternal life. In 2 Corinthians 1.22, we are told, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And in Ephesians 1.13 and 14, in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's like you go along uh, and, 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 and you put down a deposit on a house. And, and what you're saying is, I'm going to come and take up residence in that house and I will complete the payment. Now, we play in installments. God, God has given us that pledge and one day he will fulfill. And it's not 
just him. He will tabernacle amongst us. He will do, dwell with us, but we will dwell with him. And the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit is a continual reminder of the certainty of Jesus' promises. The Spirit himself generates those inner longings with which the believer will be satisfied only when he sees Christ face to face. You know, there's many distractions along the way. There's, there's many things that are, are glittering and would distract us today from looking at our eternal because it seems so distant. Perhaps for some of us that are a little bit older, it's not as distant as it used to be. <laughs> and we're more aware of the decay of our body and uh, perhaps you know, start to realise. But this isn't something... C.T. Studd, when he, he wrote that poem, was a young man who chose to choose, who chose what is better who chose to follow the things of God rather than the things of this world. And so Paul says we're longing for a home. In verse 6, Therefore always, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the word, from the Lord. The Greek word used here, ekdidomai, often translated as absent or away, can also mean exiled and you think of the people of Israel while they were in exiled in, in, in Syria and Babylon they were longing to come home we just looked at that in the book of Zechariah coming home had some challenges uh, uh, and then they were almost defeated and they turned worldly building their own houses and, and God rebukes them why, why are you building your panelled houses when you could be building the place of worship for me. Uh, it's a matter of priorities. But because the believer has God's guarantee, he or she can be confident, a word that means to be of good cheer or to be of good courage, and the presence of the Holy Spirit in Paul's life gave him confidence. It assured of him that God was at work in him and would continue his work. Philippians 1.6, he writes to the believers in Philippi, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, while a believer is alive on earth, he's away from the fullness of God's presence. We had the down payment, and it's glorious, but we have even more to come. However, Paul was not saying he had absolutely no contact because there is prayer, the indwelling spirit, the fellowship through the word. Paul was ex simply expressing, the, expressing a heavenly homesickness, a strong yearning to be at home with the Lord. You know the song... I still call Australia home, Don't, not, not, uh, um, not recommending Peter Allen's choice of life, but there is something in that that resonates with us when we're overseas. You know, you, you can't wait to get back. I, I still call Australia home. But in a greater sense it ought to be, but I call heaven home. And that's what I'm thinking. Paul says in Colossians 3, 2 to 4, set your mind on the things above, not 
on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And so it's, Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And to walk by faith means to make faith part of every daily activity. Walking is nothing remarkable in itself, although it is if you, if you suffer paralysis or any other things or you're recovering from injuries and you've got to learn how to walk again. Some people have amazing experiences having to learn like a baby to start from scratch again after injuries. But we're to walk by faith. But God, uh, the life experience of the future is being determined by how we walk today, how we invest in this life today. And so Paul says he prefers to be absent in verse 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. The day will come when we will no longer be absent from the Lord in the sense that Paul means here. But because heaven is a better place than earth, Paul would rather have been there with God. This sentiment simply states Paul's feelings and longings of verse 6 from a reverse perspective. He was going to be with the Lord. He was pleased that he would be with the Lord after his death. And so he says in verse 9 and 10, verse 9, Therefore, uh, we also have as our ambition, whether living at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. In other words, we're choosing instead, because of this temporary eternal dichotomy, we're choosing that which is better. We're choosing to live for Christ in the here and now. So we aim to be pleasing to him. Either way, either way, whether at home or absent, in exile as it were, the goal is to please him. Aim is from the Greek word that means to love what is honourable. I'm shooting for what is, it is beyond reproach, for what is honourable. And that was Paul's highest goal and should also be for every believer. He says to the Romans, uh, right, the church in Rome, Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's aiming for the honourable. You see, when we get to heaven, there'll be no more need for faith, no more need for endurance through trials, no more need for courage and boldness in telling others about Jesus. But now, while we are present in these bodies, is our opportunity to please God in these areas, to make the choice. And why would we do that? Well, he tells us a very good reason. He refers to it as the judgment seat of Christ in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and and I'll explain that in a minute. This is different to the great white throne judgment of unbelievers at the end of the tribulation. Uh, you could look at all of the, the aspects of judgment, but this is a judgment for what we've done in his name. Well, as people who profess his name. This is for believers. Um, after the rapture, 
some, at some point in that process, whether immediately, etc., we will stand before his judgment seat, and I'll explain some about that. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And it's referred to from the Greek as the, the, the judgment seat is the Bema seat. Dr. John Barnett, who we've been doing course with at the moment, um, I, I saw it early in the course and then I went to his other teaching in 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. But he notes we each have an appointment at God's accounting department, the Bema seat of Christ. When we pass from these bodies... To the world beyond, we must each give account according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this describes the judgment of the works of believers, gold, precious, silver, precious stones versus wood, hay and stubble. But we will explain what we lived for. This is not primarily about rebuke. It's not about judgment in that sense. It's rather like, and, and in fact, in one of the things MacArthur points out here, and I'll, I'll share it with you in a sec, that the picture in Corinth is really of an athletic uh, thing where when you stand on the podium, the judgment is not against you, but recognising your achievements. Um, of course, it is against in the sense that if it's all burned away, then, uh, then there's not, nothing to show for it. But as John MacArthur notes, the judgment seat metaphorically... Uh, uh, refers to the place where the Lord will sit to evaluate believers' life for the purpose of giving them eternal rewards. It is the Greek, uh, translated from the Greek word bema, and there, that is where the bema seat is in, in, in Corinth, which has an elevated platform with victorious athletes during the Olympics went to receive their crowns. The term is also used in the New Testament to refer to the place of judgment of judging, as when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. But here the reference he suggests is definitely taken from the athletic analogy. Corinth had such a platform where athletic rewards and legal justice were dispensed. Um, and you see in Acts 18, Paul is taken to the uh, judgment seat. So the Corinthians understood Paul's reference. The judgment seat is not the great white throne judgment. And as I said, we could spend more time just doing comparison because I want to get to the application of all of this. Where unbelievers, uh, the, the great white throne judgment, unbelievers are to be judged by their works and then sent to hell. But uh, this is a judgment for rewards or loss of rewards to believers. David Guzik notes this, we must live understanding that what we have done will be judged. It is possible to have a safe soul and a wasted life. And that, we will be, uh, and that will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. We must live understanding that our motives for what we do will be judged. One can do the right things but with a wrong heart. God will often still use that person and even bring blessing through them, yet in the end, it is as if they did nothing for the Lord because their motives for service did not stand up at the judgment seat of Christ. 
We won't be punished for what we... Uh, what was not done rightly in the Lord, those things will simply be burned up and it will be as if we never did them. We'll simply be rewarded for what remains. And of course, in 1 Corinthians 3.15, it says, uh, if, if it's all burned up, he will be saved, but as through fire. Keith Green, the singer who died early uh, after passionately coming to Christ, says this, all roads lead to the judgment seat of Christ. You can't escape it. If you, if you profess to be a believer, you will appear before his throne. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this, I have but two days in my calendar, today and the day I stand before Christ. <laughs> that, that has an impact on how I live today, if you think that way, doesn't it? it there's no idle time. Writing to the Romans, a parallel passage to 2 Corinthians in Romans in 14, 10 to 12, he says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. John Barnett, who I've mentioned from our course, says this. Live like a microphone is broadcasting all your words and thoughts before God to everyone around you. <laughs> Have a think about that again. Live like a microphone is broadcasting all your words, but not only your words, and thoughts to, before God to everyone around you they can see just <laughs> don't waste your life living for what will only burn up it's foul on good for nothing and he then goes on to give us a series of challenging applications one of the things I've always struggled with is teaching the, the, the text and the context is, is easy but sometimes applying it You've got to go a little more broadly, and he's done that here for us. He's done the homework for us. Think about these things in the choices we make. Our media. And he says we listen to music more than we listen to God. Our money. We trust in wealth and jobs more than in the God who gives us life and strength. Our appearance. We are more concerned about our clothes and looks than about our spiritual condition. Our status. We sacrifice to have things, pleasures and experiences that are not pleasing to God. Our personal agenda. We sacrifice the eternal time with God, His church, His word, His ministry, for the temporal. Schedules filled with sports, recreation, and not the eternal. He, he's, he's not knocking these things per se. They have their place. Even Paul says bodily exercise profits a little. But he's saying get it into perspective. We so often prioritize all of these things before the Lord. Possessions. And he says, are you more excited about going shopping so, and, and acquiring more beautiful things than standing before God at his throne? 
And he gives us this verse, Mark, Matthew 16, 19 to 21. Do not store up, Jesus said, do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sacrifice. Are you more committed to school, work and sports events than to God, his word and Christ as his church gathers? Romans 12, 1 and 2, he writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies active, a choice, a determination, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Beauty. Are you more faithful to the exercise, beautification and care of your physical body or the, the nurture of your spiritual soul? First Peter 3, 3 to 4, Peter writes, Your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting it on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Communications, big topic for today. Are you more connected with your friends on Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest than you are connected to the one who bought you with his own blood? And I've always said that Revelation 3.20, it's used to sharing the gospel with non-believers, but in its context, it was written to a church that professed to know him. And he has to say, oh, I haven't got it there, just sick. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What are your choices? He gives us this application prayer. I want to reflect it. If you can, um, if you can read it from there. Yeah, for most, you may be able to. But listen as we share. This has spoken to me. I hope it's spoken to you. Lord, I want to be spiritual, and not fleshly. I want to eat your word. Change my attitudes. Control my time. Help me build and plant for you, trusting any increase into your hands. Help me build with eternal materials so I can give you an offering from my life. I am, as we read in 1 Corinthians 3, your temple. Fill, use, 
cleanse and guide me for your glory. Let me invest in your planting and watering. I want to live.